Welcome to Between the Lines, a monthly podcast that explores books for a better world, brought to you by the Institute of Development Studies. Food is essential for life and can be used as a way to understand and highlight complex social challenges. In 2008 and 2011, there was a global food crisis. Thousands of people in dozens of countries took to the streets to protest the spike in food prices. In this month's episode of Between the Lines, IDS researchers Naomi Hussain and Pata Scott Villas discuss their book, Food Riots, Food Rights and the Politics of Provisions. They get behind the headlines and inside the politics of food for people on low incomes. Interviewing Naomi and Pata is Jenny Constantine from King's College, London. So at some point, Pata and Naomi, you said that the food rights were supposed to be ancient history. What happened? Why this book? We'd um, been we'd been brought to understand by um, uh, the the kind of the, the general sense of progress that development had made uh, that integrated food markets around the world were going to mean that if any country or any any community was short of food, there was always going to be a market that could supply food, and that would mean that that, that food prices. Would, would remain even and that people wouldn't suffer from uh, either volatility or, or very rapidly rising prices. Mm-hmm. But it turned out that we were wrong. I don't know that we were wrong, <laughs> but the people who thought that the integration of global food markets would mean the end of these sorts of crises. I mean, look again also at all the, the famines that have happened around the world in the last two years, 40 million people facing famine. Mm-hmm. It's, clear, it's clear that the global food system is broken and mm-hmm. the food rights are an important symptom of that and there are others as well. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, so the, the, the sort of link, I suppose, with the, with the Arab uprisings as well was something that brought this to the, to the fore you know, in terms of people understanding that there were food riots in, in all these countries. Suddenly this was on the telly, right? <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, I think that we we always we get a, we 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 feel a bit uncomfortable about using the term food riots, and yet it's so recognisable. People know exactly what you mean when you're talking about a food riot. But actually, the Arab the Arab uprisings, um, I think they're a really good example of of how the term is really misleading because certainly those were triggered by uh, issues like the price of bread, the withdrawal of subsidies for bread, mm-hmm. but they were about many many more things than than food. Mm-hmm. Food is a kind of a what would you say? It's like a an amplifier. It's a it's a it's a source of moral concern that that lots of political concerns radiate out from. I think. Yes, it's one of the the groundings for uh, for this book we're talking about, which is that food is one of the essentials of life, um, and there are several others. There's there's shelter, there's fuel, there's care, um, and there are times when it can appear that a a sudden rise in the price or loss of access to something of that that level of importance to so many people can trigger these these responses, these protests, which could be rioters, could be violent, could be uh, large numbers of the population behaving politically in ways that the politicians would rather they didn't. Um, and it's often called the sort of rumble of the belly. But in, in effect, what you'll find is it's, it's uh, what we're calling the politics of provisions in which people... Are, are turning to their government and saying, you are no longer providing us with the opportunities to access the absolute essentials in life. And that's what governments are for. 
So we've touched on some more recent examples of, of food riots, but of course there are other examples historically. And would you would you be able to tell us a bit more about the historical context of the food riots? I know that understanding history has had a really important role in your approach for this book. Yeah, absolutely. And I think in, in our in our in our joint work, pattern and my joint work um more generally, I think social social history has a lot to tell us about the ways in which societies have um developed obviously and in particular these about these moments of crisis in the transition to properly capitalist economies where you have people who are uh, suddenly if you like in the market for food whereas before perhaps a generation past they were growing their own or bartering or whatever they used to do suddenly very much at the mercy of 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 markets and food price changes so it's a kind of these food rights are i think we learn from history a kind of a symptom of difficult transitions to capitalism and, and of, of, of people claiming their, their their state should do something to protect them uh, against this kind of commodification of the basics of everyday life. What do you think, Patrick? Yeah, and one of the, the people that we've drawn on uh, as a real foundation is E.P. Thompson and his work on, on what he describes as the moral economy. Um, and he looked at um, 18th century food protests and riots in, in Britain. And what he pointed out from doing this incredibly uh, beautiful review of uh, newspaper coverage of these events and what people were saying and, and what they were doing was that people were rising up and grabbing hold of bread that was going off to market or grain that was seemingly heading for the port. And, and what they were doing was they were arguing that the, the market was being allowed to remove what was theirs by, by ancient right. And this, this sense of a moral economy was an agreement between an unspoken agreement between the people and the state, whereby the state did not allow the market to become too rapacious to be able to, be able to remove from under their very noses the food they relied on to, to survive. And I, and I think that marks also a, a, a real shift where, if you like, the, the downtrodden or, or, you know, the people who had experienced hunger, and we see this nowadays in the UK, are somehow dismissed. So, there it is, you know, hunger or food insecurity or whatever you might call it. It exists. It's just one of those things. And the poor will always be with us. It. Yeah. Yeah. You gloss over it, you accept it, and you sort of move on. You know, it's one of those things that you ignore. So I think this, what you've described, is a, is a real shift in how people understood their relationship. But it's also, I mean, it's very importantly, it's a critique of the market. Mm. It's a critique of the way the market works and its kind of failure to protect basic subsistence. And it's also a critique, therefore, of political power and how that allows or doesn't allow people to get on with everyday mm. life. should mention one other, one other historian who's been really important for us is John Bostead, who, in fact, um, although he did debate with E.P. Thompson back in the day, we were lucky enough to uh, get him a little bit involved with our work. And he mm. wrote a really rather brilliant piece on the politics of provisions that's in the Journal of Peasant Studies, which people will want to look at, which lo mm -hmm. looks at food riots over history, including the 2008-2011 episodes. Mm. So John Bostead is somebody who's been very important for our work as well. Absolutely. So in, in writing the book, is there something that really, you know, stuck out, something that surprised you? I mean, yeah. <laughs> you know, um, I think the thing that, I think people can be quite, I think all of us can be quite dismissive of these sorts of protests. People say, people, I think people think, oh, it's just, you know, hungry, angry people jumping up and down. It's just never that. It's just never that. It takes a lot 
to make a protest hit, to make a kind of riot. I think that really the thing that surprised me now, and even now when I say it, it still surprises me, is that food riots seem to work. Not all of them, of course. We only ever hear about the ones that work. You know, they, if it gets to the newspapers, then it's a sign it's already working in some way. Not necessarily to improve nutrition or to make things better, but they, they have a kind of political impact. Always, don't you find? You know, if they, if they get to a scale where they're visible in the newspapers, in the to the elites, then they, they've already done their work. And this, I think, was really surprising to me. It still surprises me now when I think about it. Yeah, and I, I, I guess what's also important is, is we learnt, I and mean, we did all these, uh, these studies in different countries, and um, in each country uh, there was a different form of protest and riot, and in each country there was a different form of political response. Uh, and what I hadn't understood prior to doing the study was that the, the relationship between uh, the, the political system, the, the way of rioting and protesting for the masses, for the people on very low incomes and so on, and the, the, the kinds of response were all sort of intimately associated with one another and they'd built up over time. So in, in Mozambique, you had a particular kind of blast of, of, of fury followed by uh, what, what uh, the, the author of the relevant chapter called authoritarian responsiveness, <laughs> where they, they come through with responses, but at the same time with a you know, very heavy, a heavy hand. Whereas in other places like India, you had, uh, you had riots in different places, you had all sorts of really very ruly work going on in the Supreme Court. Um, and you had a a kind of system-wide response. Um, and I suppose, for me, that was, it was surprising that you understand that, that, that riots are part of a political system. They're not just a, an outlier thing. No, and, and they're accepted as such, I think, by, by the powers that be. So I, I was in Mozambique at that particular point in time. And I, I remember, first of all, in Maputo, you know, the streets being empty after the riots had quietened down and the police had sort of come in and and uh, and it was eerie the city was very very quiet but then you know fast forward a, a few well really only I think a few days forward I used to work for the World Food Programme and I remember the government called in the heads of all the UN agencies and said right how do we deal with this mm. how do we fix this and uh, you know if you think of if you think of because one of my questions to you was you know what difference did the protests make well if you think of this relationship between a mass of people who often don't have much of a voice or or, or aren't heard and suddenly the government go oh dear you know how do we deal with this for perhaps all all the wrong reasons but nonetheless i i suppose it brings about this kind of responsiveness that you might not get otherwise Absolutely. I, I, I should qualify a little bit this idea that food riots work, though. I mean, I think the example of Kenya, which Pata and our colleague Celestine Nyamu studied, is, is particularly interesting because there you did have protests and they were entirely ignored, as far as we can tell, uh, by the media. And um, the elites, uh, there was a wonderful quote, in fact, from uh, the Kenyan study, which was, uh, I don't know who it was, it was a senior bureaucrat or a politician of some sort, who said, if Kibera burns... Do you say Kibera? Kibera burns. You know, then we'll do something. Mm. So basically, you really have to threaten the elites in Kenya for them to do something about food security for the urban poor because it's just not a, it's not the way their politics works. It's not the way their polit political economy is configured. But in most of these other places, it was configured in the way that you say. The elite suddenly thought, oh, God damn, we've got to do something about mm. this. I suppose it's also the, the visibility of it. Um, 
you had mentioned this this uh, issue of a of the sort of critical uh, one of the critical mechanisms in this being the transition from agrarian to modern economies and the the issue with a real growing dependence on food markets by urban people. Would you would you be able to talk a little bit more about that in terms of how people are able to manage their their food supply and the sort of shift from as you were saying before, you know, growing growing your own food to suddenly being really dependent on a market and not always being able to manage how that how you interact with that market if you know if you're on a low income, etc. Yeah, I think there's a there's a when you're you're growing your own food, uh back in the original days that really was you and your community and everybody's working together as much as they do uh, to, 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 to make that work. And when things go wrong, people help one another and so on. Um, and then you get transitions. You do become dependent, for example, on fertilizer supplies, which is uh, provided certainly in many places across the world by governments through sort of subsidy programs. But somehow that still is a different form of kind of dependence on the state to, to respond to you than when you become part of the market where you're buying your literally everyday food is coming from the market. It then seems uh, something that's really out of your control. You can't, you can't stop the prices from going up. You can't, you can't tell what they're going to do. Mm -hmm. um, and as such, I think it, it creates this whole new sense of insecurity. Mm. And at the same time, uh, one of the things we were learning from people is that it, it also creates this sense of... Um, well, look, I'm doing my bit. I'm working hard and I'm raising, you know, some cash and I've, I'm coming to the market and I'm trying to buy something and I can't find it or I can't afford it. Uh, so a sense of, of righteousness, of, you know, this is, this is not right. Something has gone astray here or gone awry here. Yeah, absolutely. You're working your, your socks off and still yeah. can't afford the basics for your family. It's a, it's a moment of absolute yeah. outrage for many people when they, when they realise that prices have gone out of the... But I should just say on this on this issue of you know people buying rather than growing their own food. I mean, at the time of the two thousand seven two thousand eight food crisis, they you know the the World Bank has crunched the numbers and concluded that the majority of the poor are in fact net food buyers. Mm -hmm. So farm you know we we all know about industrialized food, the food and ag system. Um, it, increasingly, people who grow food are not our kind of stereotypical small uh, farmer, but they are big farmers and uh, or industrial farms and 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 the majority of the rural poor are in fact net food buyers so this is not just an urban issue even though the riots are urban uh, the riots are never rural the riots are always urban you're listening to between the lines brought to you by the institute of development studies i suppose you know so the the we're, we're sitting here in the institute of development studies you know we all work in development and we have a, a background in development studies but thinking about food riots in particular and in the light of the study, why, why would you say that they really matter for those of us who, who work in development or who study development issues? You know, not just as a sort of a, a, a one-off occurrence that might happen historically, but why, why do we need to keep, keep coming back and looking at this and understanding both what's been but what might come as well? Food riots and food protests and, and the associated uh, protests about provisions, you know, the provisions of the basics of, of allowing people to make their contribution to society it are 
absolutely fundamental to most of the people in most of the world. Um, and it's these moments of, of voice, it's these moments of political power, which are, perhaps it's not, I shouldn't say moments, because the the power and the voice come out at that point and they're picked up and amplified and, and sort of things are done with the, that voice by media. But actually what's happening is a political relationship that's going on all the time between uh, ordinary people and those who have the power to, you know, have policies of redistribution and recognition and so on. So it's a crucial development issue to understand. This is not about technical advice to policymakers. Mm -hmm. This is about the people saying, don't forget us, we are really important, we are the citizens of this state. Yeah, absolutely. And I think I think that um what you know you have the 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 uh, English food rioters of the of the 18th century and the French uh, food rioters of course famously uh, around the time of the French Revolution. But what we have now in 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 the 2000s the 21st century is a is a highly globalized food system and so you have this kind of these food riots actually dramatize the 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 tensions between you know national self determination and globalization in an important way, and I think that the the the, the history books Charles Tilly is another you know uh, scholar that we've really used a lot of, and Charles Tilly's work on on how food supply shaped this, the formation of European states I think has been really important. States must have bureaucrats and they must have armies and police forces. Uh, they must have urban centers and urban centers are by definition places where people don't really feed themselves so if you can't resolve the basic problem of how to feed your cities mm. you have no chance of developing a functional state mm. I think that's the the big long historical mm. lesson yeah and I suppose I, I was looking again at the title of your book and often the shorthand when talking I think about your project is the you know the food rights and the food rights project because you know it almost says it all and there's this wonderful alliteration there but actually the second half of your title is really fundamental it's the politics of provisions and although we've talked a lot about food you've also alluded to to fuel and to income and to you know and this idea of you as you said which I find really powerful particularly when you consider uh, you know, I suppose the state of affairs politically and socioeconomically in the UK right now and in Brazil, where I'm from, where people work really hard. You know, people, there's no deserving and undeserving poor. Yeah. Like, people work hard. Mm. And it's, as you say, the, the sort of indignation that must come from working really hard and doing your bit as a citizen. And yet the politics of provisions are such that you may not be able to provide for yourself and for your family. And that, I suppose, is where the anger and the protest and the uprising that you were studying comes to the fore. Because if you've done your bit and your state or the powers that be have not, then what's left? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, that's one of the things we're going to, where we're hoping to look at next is is the way in which how these crises get resolved, these food crises, also fuel crises, how they get resolved shapes how people view their the competence or the, the, the effectiveness of their states, how it shapes political trust, in short. We think it's quite likely that, that the ways in which people trust or don't trust their governments uh, and their state institutions probably relates very much to how successfully they manage those politics of provisions. And state institutions' ability to manage that in, in this day and age is, is quite different than it was even 50 years ago. The, the, the global forces are so much more volatile and strong. 
um, and you know, the, the, the possibility that you might lose, like for Bangladesh or sort of your vital garments industry to some other uh, country that's offering lower wages and less stringent uh, labour conditions uh, is, is always there. So, so the, the states themselves have this uh, tremendous pressure on them to, to be able to find a way of delivering on the politics of provisions. Mm-hmm. It's a different era now. Mm-hmm. But just well, one thing also I think is important to keep in mind about these protests is that they are, you know, they, it's not it's not that people think, oh, I've got nothing to do this Saturday, I'll go and join a protest. It, this is people take a lot of risks, you know. These are these are often violent and repressive mm-hmm. states um, where where these things come about, or or at least they're states that are quite willing to get the water cannon and the whatever out, um, because actually a, a, a food riot is a is a matter of enormous shame mm-hmm. for most states absolutely terrible thing it says look you can't even manage this you know it's it's like it's like the deadbeat dad it's just a matter of total shame they really don't like it to be seen don't like to be seen to be having food riots and and i would say for the for the citizen for the individual as well because if you are having to rise if you're having to take that risk it means that you can't provide and so it's also a it's an indictment of of the self to some extent no yeah um you talked a little bit about work that you are doing on on fuel, but you were also alluding to to how this research has shaped, you know, what what might be coming next in terms of your of your work. Would you would you be able to share with us a little bit about sort of what next? Well, we've all, one of the what nexts has already happened. In fact, we've produced a paper on energy protests. A very a uh, quick and dirty study, and again, lots of interesting people from around the world. And energy protests follow a, a similar but not identical pattern in the last decade. Um, they happen in different sorts of contexts to food riots on the whole, or some different contexts. Sometimes you get the same. Mozambique, for, for instance, I think 2010 was both a food and fuel um, protest. And that's again the politics of provisions because in modern life you need to you need your bus fare or your motorcycle, uh, petrol or whatever it is just to to get to work, um, and you know this kind of peri-urban phenomenon of most uh, low-income people living on the outskirts of big cities. That's one thing. What what else are we up to, Pater? Well, we're plotting. We're we're, <laughs> we're putting something together, and we hope it will be successful. It it relates to uh, this question of of. The legitimacy of governments and the it's sort of couched within a, an observation that we're seeing more and more that the the world seems to be shifting towards or you know polities in the world seem to be shifting quite strongly towards systems which are you know people calling for more control and more nationalism in in this way of saying you government you need to protect us from the forces of globalization so we're seeing more and more of that so we're interested to help unpack how that's coming about, not just in in Western um, and Northern countries, but all across the world. Um, So we want to look at the the question of the politics of provisions and how that is making a difference to the levels of trust that people have, the levels of of, uh, legitimacy that people will place in their government, their their sense of judgment of government's performance and so on. And you'd mentioned the, the relationship between food riots and cheap food and this this very problematic nutrition transition that we're seeing across the world something that is is not just happening in developed or developing countries it's it's really spreading so you suddenly have uh you know malnourished and and obesity 
living side by side in people. Would would you be able to to share some thoughts on that with us? I think you'd talked about, you know, sort of the relationship between that and the, the drive for cheap staples and, and how that contributes to, to this nutrition transition. Well, I was going to say, I mean... It, there's there's more than one project involved here. We've got these 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 interlinked food <laughs> projects on food uh, researching uh, people's responses to the the stresses, particularly of these big crises, two thousand and eight and two thousand and eleven, um, and uh, in this uh, sort of parallel project, which is the life in the time of food price volatility project. Uh, where we visited households in multiple communities across the world. Uh, uh, repeated years and we asked them you know what are you doing and how are you coping and people uh, explained to us how uh, their entire lives really basically changed as a result of food prices going up uh, so rapidly because they needed suddenly to earn a great deal more money people found themselves having to go out and look for more different kinds of work and they, um, they're often migrating they're they're moving to town or they're moving into smaller places to live and uh, what happens is their whole lives changed mm-hmm. they had less time they were therefore finding themselves sort of unable to do the kind of cooking that they might have once been able to do the family's more fragmented uh, the men are in one place the women in another uh, which changed the way they were able to eat mm-hmm. and what people told us was that they they were grabbing fast food, essentially, on the street. And other people who were looking for a way to make a living and to make some income were setting up little kiosks, selling, uh, you know, fast fried food. And so you've got this complete shift in, in, in so many people's diets, which led us to understand that the, uh, the possibility of becoming obese and becoming malnourished in that different way where you've got the calories but you haven't got the micronutrients uh, was coming about not because people were being self-indulgent but actually because they were working harder gosh it's perverse isn't it it is there's a, there's actually a chapter in the food riots book um by lauren snide uh, about cameroon which shows that uh, the 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 food riots worked to the extent that the government was uh you know it had the the fear of the masses in it. And uh, how they responded essentially was by um, starting to import cheap at the time staples from elsewhere, basically introducing rice into the diet. Now now the Cameroonian population is uh, accustomed, to, it seems, to cheap rice mm-hmm. as opposed to uh, what they used to eat, I think, uh, was often sorghum and maize and other things. And um, and the, the, the diet is basically less diverse and presumably less nutritious, but also more vulnerable to changes in the global rice price because they don't really grow their own rice in Cameroon. So So it comes back to the link between sort of the, you know, the the very individual people's lives with the local, with national policies and politics, with this, you know, global food prices in a highly interconnected world and how as a, you know, as a citizen, one understands the relationship between all those things and how that plays out when you just go to buy the ingredients for your dinner is a, it's People a real shift. understand it to a remarkable degree, Quite, yet yeah. they still hold their national governments accountable because that's the that's the level that they can see, but it's also the level where they know something can be done. Yeah, I mean, uh, how are yeah, you going to say? Are you going to protest against the WTO? No, you're not, are you? I mean, you are if you're going to Seattle, and, but you know, <laughs> sitting in your in your you know urban settlement you're not going yeah. to be protesting against the WTO. no absolutely my, my point was was more about how the mm. this, this globalization has shifted to such a point that the act of going to buy 
your dinner yeah. now represents something entirely different. And yeah, you see absolutely. this entire kind of shift and yeah. chain in this quite simple domestic act of yeah. going to buy something. Yeah, and so, so it's a, it, that, that in itself is, is remarkable. Um, I feel that we might be getting close to wrapping up. So I have a, a question. Uh, it's, it's a sort of um, interviewer's privilege, <laughs> I hope. <laughs> But it's a question which um, speaks to my own uh, research in Brazil and in the, in the UK. One of the book's findings was how much in common these different political cultures had when organizing around food across different geographies, different histories, languages, and, and traditions. And of course, you mentioned the differences, but there are, there are also these commonalities. And food justice movements and activists in countries like the UK increasingly are battling a, a range of food-related issues which are globalized, like we've, you know, we were talking about today. And this also stems, I guess, from the, the 2008 and 2011 food and financial crises. But I, I wonder what we might learn from the experience of unruly politics around food in countries like Bangladesh, India, Kenya, Mozambique and, and Cameroon, and particularly in light of your, your conclusion that food riots work. <laughs> well, I think anyway. I think I think one of the things that we're lacking in the UK currently, given the situation of food poverty, the rising uh, reliance on food banks, is that uh, people have lost the uh, the habit or the culture of of holding governments to account over food. We just don't have the mechanisms. We don't have the organizations. We don't have the moral economy, frankly. We just don't expect anymore that government should protect our basic subsistence rights, I think. Uh, don't you think that, wouldn't you agree with that? I just don't, I don't think people expect it anymore. I think they think, oh, I'm, I'm hungry and I have to go to the food bank and it must be my fault in some way. Yeah, and I think that must be, it's affected by a kind of global communications shift that we've had where... Uh, that that sense of of almost powerlessness about you know where these problems are coming from um, is such that you end up feeling like it's just me um, I'm the only one who can who can cope with this so you do you turn to your government and you say what are you doing about this but it, it you, there is a bit of a sense of you know a kind of loss of 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 the local and therefore the power to do something about it it's true well so so food for thought. Thank you very much both for your time. It's been a real privilege to have this conversation with you and I look forward to reading the next book. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you like this, then please subscribe and share. Between the Lines is a monthly podcast published on the first Wednesday of every month. Follow us on Twitter at IDS underscore UK or visit ids.ac.uk.